This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, December 30th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. There are a couple of reasons to be hopeful in 2015 when it comes to federal spending. For one, divided government often means flat spending. Jonathan Bidlack is president of the Coalition to Reduce Spending. Ahead of the new Congress, we talked about how the new balance of power might play out in the new year. Yeah, so I think the the answer is that it's both good news and bad news. So on the one hand, you know, one of the things that there's a lot of evidence for is this idea that divided government is good for limited government. Uh, and so, you know, if you look at in the 1990s, for example, some people give Bill Clinton credit for, for balancing the budget, and some people give Newt Gingrich and the Republican Congress credit. And the reality is that it was probably this joint dynamic that led to the, the fiscal outcomes that we have. And so now what you're describing is a similar situation. We have a Democratic president, and we have a Republican Congress. And so perhaps that ends up being good for uh, restricting spending. Now, that said, I think that the, the sort of the thing that would give me pause and, and probably gives a lot of your listeners pause is that a lot of the people who were elected this cycle uh, are not necessarily uh, as committed uh, to fiscal conservatism as, say, the Tea Party wave in, in 2010. And so there was this sort of dynamic, I think, that played out this electoral cycle whereby a lot of people were focused very much on we need to elect Republicans regardless of who those Republicans are and sort of where they are ideologically. And so how that all plays out in the next two years particularly against the backdrop where Republicans are going to be uh, at risk of losing the Senate in 2016 just because they have a, a situation where, where many of them are going to be coming up for re-election. How that all plays out in terms of spending is anyone's guess. And so you kind of have these two, these two sides of the coin. On the one hand, you have, okay, we have divided government. On the other hand, you have, well, how good are these candidates or are these, these newly elected senators and representatives? We don't necessarily know yet. So what are the areas of agreement where this president and this Congress could work together to reduce spending? And what issue areas are we likely to see the potential for reducing federal spending? Yeah, so one that a lot of people have talked about and where I think there's there's a potential is criminal justice reform. You know, there are a lot of people on the left who very, particularly in the wake of, of Ferguson and, and uh, New York, want to see uh, reform in that area. And there's obviously a, a, a large contingent on the right, I think, being led by Rand Paul, but even a, a number of libertarian and conservative groups that recognize that there needs to be reform on that issue. So while there won't necessarily, I think, be a whole lot of big ticket items, you know, it's very unlikely that you're going to see entitlement reform say, or reform at the Pentagon, there are a number of issues like that where you could see um, some agreement by left and right. And I think it, that is one of those issues that does bring together uh, people from across the political spectrum. All right. What else? What else? Uh, well, I mean, like I said, you're not going to obviously see uh, see uh, uh, Obamacare being repealed anytime soon. Um, perhaps there is some ultimate agreement on immigration. You know, that's obviously sort of the issue, I guess, that's been uh, sucking the air out of the room. So perhaps there's that issue. Um, beyond that, it's anyone's guess. I mean, I think the next big thing that, that is on the agenda is the debt ceiling debate coming up in March. And so, uh, you know, Republicans on that issue have, at least Republican leadership, has seemed to to be on the side of wanting to raise the debt ceiling. Obviously, the um, the president will be on that on uh, in agreement with that as well. And so, you know, that's not on the side, of course, of reducing spending, but there will be agreement there, most likely between between Republicans in Congress and and Democrats in the uh, the Democrat in the White House. Debt ceiling is meant to be a check on the amount of debt that uh, the federal government contracts in our names. But it's not been effective. It seems that whenever it 
someone or a group of people decide it needs to go up, it goes up. Yeah, the debt ceiling is pretty much the only rule that we have that attempts to restrict spending. Uh, and, and the way it does that is by restraining a borrowing authority and says that, you know, Congress has to approve any increases in, uh, in, the, in the debt or in, in borrowing. And what's interesting about the debt ceiling is that most people don't realize that the, his- in the history of the debt ceiling was such that it wasn't actually to serve as a, uh, a restriction on, on debt. It was actually meant to make it easier to issue debt. Um, back in, in the time of World War One, Congress was very tired of having to go and approve every single bond issue. And so they basically said, well, we're just going to set this cap and Treasury, you can do whatever you want. You can increase the borrowing authority up to that point. So the debt ceiling in that case actually enabled the issuing of debt. And, you know, I would argue that it's, it's never ceased doing so. And as we see, it's, you know, now there, it really doesn't serve as a check at all, right? There's never been a time where Congress has actually said we're not going to go and, and raise the debt ceiling. And there are some legitimate reasons reasons for that as to, you know, whether or not it could be considered a default or not a default. Um, But at the end of the day, we really have no restriction on borrowing authority and we have no restriction on spending. And so it's not that surprising that we've seen spending go up despite the fact that we have the debt ceiling. So what are uh, potential avenues for restricting government spending, Mm -hmm. either through some mechanism that doesn't deal specifically with spending or some mechanism that just says, look, you can't spend more than... uh, Population growth plus GDP growth, yeah, and that's that's your that's your limit. So there are a couple of places you can look for examples. Uh, one would be what do other countries do, and the second would be what do U.S. states do. Uh, and what you find is that in both those cases, there are actually uh, rules in place that differ pretty substantially from what we have in the U.S. federal government. Most countries have uh, a restriction not on borrowing authority, but actually on spending itself. So countries like Sweden or Switzerland or Germany will say, you know, we have some target level of debt or of spending. And if we go beyond that, then it's statutorily or constitutionally required that we must reduce our expenditures. Some countries actually go and base, you know, what they're able to spend as some function of what their expected tax revenues are. And that's sort of the idea behind uh, Congressman Amash's balanced budget amendment, if you're familiar with that. Uh, at the state level, the best example we have is the Taxpayer Bill of Rights in Colorado. So uh, basically, again, we have a restriction on what the state of Colorado can spend uh, as a function of, of what their, their sort of expected revenue is. And what we've seen is that countries and states that have these kind of restrictions that are based on what you describe, population growth plus inflation or something like that, have have brought their uh, their fiscal situation into much a uh, much sounder footing than we have at the at the federal level, and so uh, I think there's a strong case to be made that the U.S. federal government would benefit from some sort of rule like that. Now, of course, it's very difficult to do so if you're talking about a constitutional rule. But things like, for example, the the Budget Control Act in 2011 have provided a similar sort of uh, concept, right? We're going to create this rule. We're going to cap spending going out into the future, and we have seen some spending restraint as as a result of that rule. And so I think, generally speaking, you know, we need to be promoting more of those kinds of rules if we ultimately want to see spending reduced. A whole lot of what the federal government spends, I mean, in real people terms, it's a whole lot of money. In federal, ter- federal spending terms, it's not a lot of money, uh, particularly at the Pentagon, uh, is spent essentially off the books. Yeah. And uh, it has been overseas contingency operations, supplemental bills that are not considered as a part of the regular budget process. That's right. So the, as you described, the, the OCO budget, as it's called, or some people you know, refer to it as the, the Pentagon slush fund, basically allows them to spend on things off budget um, for you know, 
so-called emergencies. And some of those, I suppose, are more legitimate than others. You can talk about you know, uh, foreign affairs uh, you know, uh, issues overseas. But then you even now have things like you know, Ebola funding being lumped into that as it's being declared an emergency and therefore we need to spend. Uh, and so that's one of the ways that, of course, uh, people have gotten around the, the rules that we have in place and said, well, you know, we have these budget control act caps on spending, but we're going to get around that by allowing this other spending to take place off of the, the Pentagon space budget. Countries like uh, Sweden that uh, you noted before we began uh, recording have made some significant improvements uh, in their uh, debt to GDP ratios, but countries like Sweden also have effectively agreed to pay for their welfare states That's up right. front. And if there's uh, one thing that we've learned from uh, people like Jim Buchanan and uh, Bill Niskanen, former chairman of Cato, it's that if you don't agree to pay for it up front, people think it's cheaper than it actually is. Yeah, that's exactly it. And and you know, and, and I think, you know, one of the biggest reasons why we don't see spending reduced isn't that people don't don't care, it's just that they don't know. You know, there's so much spending going on that the scope of government in DC is so large that it's pretty much impossible to, to be familiar with all of the things that government is involved in. And so uh, if that doesn't come to the light of the day, then you know, there's not really gonna be any sort of accountability for those who wanna spend on their programs. People like uh, Tom Coburn, who is leaving Congress, um, is there, are there people who are picking up that mantle of, look, you can spend whatever you want, just offset it? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, you, there, are, there are a number of people in the House and Senate, right? I mean, someone like uh, Mark Sanford actually has sort of made uh, reducing spending his his crusade. Um, on the on the Senate side, obviously, you have Rand Paul and you have Mike Lee and you have others who are, who are sort of very strong on this issue. So I think there is sort of an increasing mentality that uh, if we're gonna if we're gonna reduce spending, we have to think in terms of offsets. And I, I think that the other the other big advantage to talking about it in, as you just described in terms of offsets is that um, you now have sort of an inherent flexibility in that. And rather than saying, you know, well, we have to absolutely start with program A or program B, we can have those debates, but let's acknowledge that whenever we're going to spend on something, we're going to cut somewhere else so that we're not actually increasing our increasing spending. Rand Paul in his I believe his first floor speech in the Senate talked about federal spending, talked about compromise. And one of the things that Republicans have just been largely unwilling to give on is military spending. And something that uh, Democrats have been largely unwilling to give on is is entitlement spending. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the unhappy sort of uh, medium there is that we spend a lot more than we otherwise would on both. That's right. Yeah. I mean, we sort of uh, have lived for a long time in this this sacred cow sort of environment where, where as you described, uh, you know, Democrats have their sacred cow of entitlement spending and Republicans have their sacred cow of, of uh, military spending. And they kind of come together and shake hands and say, I'll vote for your spending if you vote for mine. And and that's the, the dynamic that has to be broken. There has to actually be demand from the outside to say, no, the compromise that we should be having is you vote to cut some of your spending and I'll vote to cut some of mine. But you're absolutely right that that until until uh, I think that you know uh, it really starts with Republicans reconsidering the Pentagon because Republicans tend to talk a better game than Democrats on these issues. And so if they actually start to walk the walk on all issues, you will put uh, Democrats in the camp of having to consider their their sacred cow as well. Uh, but if you're not if you're not willing to go and and put your sacred cow on the table, it's really hard to expect uh, expect anyone else to do the same with theirs. 
Jonathan Bidlack is president of the Coalition to Reduce Spending. You can learn more about serious spending cuts at our websites, downsizinggovernment.org and cato.org.